Hi folks, it's Rabbi Sharon Brous here. You are listening to Ikar's podcast where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our guest speakers, our teachers, anything we think worth listening to that we can capture, you can hear right here. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, back in the spring, when we were still deep in our cocoons, I read about an exhibit that was being held at the MoMA called Making Time Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration. And it was exploring creativity in confinement. It featured works that came from incarcerated artists who, with limited material, with limited space, with limited freedom, somehow were able to create incredibly beautiful art. And reviewing the exhibit, Leslie Jameson wrote in The Atlantic that this work testifies to the stirring possibilities of generative constraint. That's a phrase that I have kept in my head over the course of these past many months, the stirring possibilities of generative constraint. And it made me wonder when I read that, what new audacious imaginings about our lives about this country, about the world, could emerge from all of the pain and all of the constriction of our time. In the, in the dizzying cacophony of this time that we're living in, I feel compelled today to lift up one daring, dangerous, counterintuitive idea. The idea that we belong to each other that we belong to each other. This is not a new idea, of course. In fact, people have been struggling with this idea for thousands of years. But on this Yom Kippur, what I wanna do is ask you to take a journey with me deep into our collective past so that we can try to reclaim some of the ancient wisdom of our tradition in order to learn how to better navigate what we are called to do, and who we are called to be in this extraordinary time that we're all living through right now. So this is gonna be a journey, are you ready? This journey starts with a murder mystery that takes place in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21. This is the story of a corpse that is found out in the wilderness. A man has been killed. But nobody knows under what circumstances. Nobody even knows who this man is. So no next of kin can be called. No arrests can be made. It is a mystery. And in another text, in another time, this would just be an invisible loss. This would be a John Doe that is held at the morgue for the requisite amount of time until he's eventually buried in an unmarked grave. Before the Israelites, this corpse, this single anonymous death presents a profound moral crisis because this passage appears near the end of the book of Deuteronomy. The Israelite people were enslaved for hundreds of years and then they walked another 40 years on that long road to freedom and they are finally now poised to enter the promised land. And when they get there, to build a society that will stand in counter-testimony to the barbarism and to the brutality that they experienced in Egypt. A society worthy 
of the descendants of enslaved people, a society that will be rooted in human dignity and in equal justice. And in such a society, people don't just die faceless and nameless out in the wilderness, nobody's responsible. In such a world as the one that we will be called to build, somebody must be responsible. And so when this corpse is found, no less than the justices of the high court, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, will come down, they will take out their measuring sticks, and they will calculate the distance from the dead body to each of the surrounding towns in the wilderness. And then the political and religious leadership from that town that's closest to the body will then be called into the rugged, untamed wilderness. It's dangerous there. It's not easy to get to. And yet, they have to go. And they bring with them a heifer, an egla arufa, a young heifer whose neck will be broken in the ritual sacrifice. The animal is slaughtered. The leaders will wash their hands and they recite a mantra. Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it done. They even use the language of kapara, atonement, as in Yom Kippur. They say, kaper la'amcha Yisrael, let this be an atonement for your people Israel. And then, and only then, are they relieved of the responsibility for the murder of a man. But wait, you might be wondering, why would the leaders be implicated in the death of a person that they did not even know just because they happened to live nearby? Why do they have to go out of their way? Why do they have to go to such great lengths to unburden themselves from a murder that they actually had nothing to do with? Our rabbis explain that they're not guilty, but they're not exactly innocent either. By engaging in this ritual, they're essentially admitting that the man who died, maybe he made his way through our town, but he never explicitly asked for our help, so we ignored him. He didn't ask for food, he didn't ask for lodging, for escort, as he left town that night. So we didn't go out of our way for him. Lo re'inuhu. In fact, we didn't even see him. But had we treated him like a brother, had we not turned away as we walked down the street, had we instead trained our eyes to see the unseen, this man would still be alive today. I want to just ask us to imagine for a moment this morning a society that's bound by that kind of social contract, that level of accountability, one person to another. Last week on Rosh Hashanah morning, I was making my way over to services and we, we stopped at the corner right by the Starbucks and there was a man who was buried underneath a blanket in front of the Starbucks. And for a moment, I looked at his body and I actually couldn't tell if he was alive or dead. And I thought about the story of the corpse that's found in the wilderness in Deuteronomy. That man asked nothing of me. But I was sick to think that we live in a world in which the good people, the good ones, either avert our eyes or at very best leave a little bit of food by his side so he'll have some nourishment 
when he wakes up. That man was somebody's child. I kept thinking about that. If that were my child, God forbid, many things go wrong, and that's my kid. What would I want somebody who sees her body on the street to do? How would I want them to act? What needs to happen for us to see each other as our own responsibility? This story, the story of the corpse in the desert, the Egla Arufa, it challenges us by giving us the ideal. It says, you, you who have been through hell, you who've been demeaned and dehumanized and degraded, you who've been turned into a number, turned into a nuisance, the most basic assumption of your survival is that you need to know how to live differently. But isn't that just some kind of fantasy? Could any society actually live up to that standard of care and concern? Well, more than a thousand years later, in the Second Temple period, the Talmud offers us a glimpse of how completely and how tragically our people missed the mark. So, so here's the second story. Crowds of onlookers in Jerusalem are gathered around the temple as two young priests, Kohanim, make their way up the altar to perform the temple service. Everything's fine until one of them sees that the other one is one step ahead of him. And so he starts to quicken his pace in order to get there first, and very soon they're all running, trying to take the lead one over the other. Finally, just as one of them gets up to the altar with the whole community of Jerusalem bearing witness, the other one pulls out his sacrificial knife and he drives it right into his friend's back. The crowd gasps. The boy has fallen to the ground. He's bleeding out. And a great scholar named Rabbi Tzadok rushes forward and says, listen up, Jews. Don't you remember what we learned in Deuteronomy, the story about the corpse that's found in the wilderness? Don't you remember the lesson that someone is responsible? Well, what about us? What about now? Clearly someone's responsible, but who is it? Is it you? Is it the Kohanim, he says? Now he's, he's pointing to the priests and they're, they're trembling, they're cowering now. You who disguise your quest for power and glory as some kind of false religiosity, you have poisoned this holy place. Or is it you, he says, and he points to all of the residents of Jerusalem. You, you who come here every day to cheer on this callous culture. You who allow violence to fester in your name in this place. You tell me, he says, who's responsible of course, it's really clear who's responsible. They all just witnessed a murder. One priest took the knife and stabbed it in another's back. But did you hear Simone Biles at the Judiciary Committee yesterday? She said, to be clear, I blame the abuser, but I also blame all of those who enabled and perpetuated this abuse with their silence. 
Rabbi Tzadok is not trying to make a legal argument. He's trying to break their hearts. He wants the people to cry. He wants them to understand that this kind of violence does not emerge ex nihilo. This emerges in a culture that permits it, a culture that normalizes it. And these young priests have inherited a spirit of corruption and competition. They've been programmed to battle. And that's exactly what they're doing. These boys, we learn in the Mishnah, they're not even the exception. They're the norm. Whenever two priests wanted to fulfill the same sacred task at the temple, they would race each other up the ramp. And this isn't even the first time that it led to violence. We have stories of priests pushing each other off the ramp, left and right. The people hear this. They hear Rabbi Tzadok, and they burst into tears. And they say, you're right. You're right. What have we done? I just, I want to dwell in this climactic moment for just a moment because here we see the possibility of a course correct. A society that had gone down a dangerous path, one that normalized zealotry and human cruelty, one in which people were instrumentalized and dehumanized but with strong moral leadership, with Rabbi Tzadok willing to speak the hard truths, this could be an awakening. This was their Sandy Hook moment. The moment of enough horror, enough heartache, that the people finally stop and ask, how could we have allowed this to happen? We can do better than this. We have to do better than this for our children's sake, if not for our own. If only the story ended there. The people are weeping. The boy's still bleeding on the ground. The Talmud says he's writhing and convulsing. When his father runs up the ramp to his dying child, and the father turns to the wailing crowds and says what might be the most sick and unimaginable words that a parent could say in this moment. Don't worry, my son's death will be an atonement for your sins. If we pull the knife out now before he breathes his last breath, it will remain ritually pure and we can use it again for sacrifice tomorrow. This final fateful twist in the narrative is absolutely horrifying. And the rabbis, our storytellers, are unforgiving. This comes to teach, they said, that in those times, in temple times, they took more seriously the sanctity of their utensils than even the spilling of blood. In our time, it would be something like they loved their guns more than their children. But the people of that time are not outraged by the father. In fact, they're placated by his words. What a relief, they probably said as they made their way home that night. It's not actually our fault. I'm so tired of Rabbi Tzadok always trying to make us feel responsible for all the problems of the world. This terrible story is remarkable for so many reasons, not the least of which that it's told in the Talmud. It's a religious text that is a polemic against fundamentalist religious practice. But at its heart, 
This is the story of a society in free fall. Just a few years after this took place, in Rabbi Tzadok's own lifetime, the Roman legions lay siege to Jerusalem. And those same holy sites that were already desecrated by the priests' fanaticism and bloodshed are now decimated by Vespasian's Caesar. It is the end of Jewish sovereignty in the land for nearly 2,000 years. This story is recorded and told by the remnant that survived the Chorban, that survived the destruction. They were desperate to send a warning shot into the future. Perhaps they knew and understood that we would confront similar dynamics in our culture one day in the future. They needed us to know that we are bound to one another. And if we don't recognize that, we will soon find ourselves stabbing one another in the back. The price of failing to honor our most basic covenantal commitment, the Torah's call to an ethic of mutual responsibility, is total societal collapse. I hope you understand why I'm telling you this story today. Last month, a professor with type 2 diabetes and other severe underlying health conditions resigned in the middle of class when a student refused numerous requests that she put on a mask in order to protect his life. He just walked out of the classroom. I've had it, he said. And, and I read about another at-risk professor who pleaded with his students to put on a mask to protect him and his family. And he was stunned when only five out of the 45 students in the class agreed to do so. Your health, your life, they seem to be saying, that is simply not my problem. I'm asking us to consider that at the heart of those school board meetings that we've seen the videos from over the last several weeks where the parents are threatening the doctor's lives when the, parents, when the doctors testify about how to keep the kids safe. At the heart of our broken, contentious, violent political culture in America today is a disagreement not over science, not over medicine, not even over politics. The fault line at the heart of our culture war is one fundamental question. Are we ultimately responsible for one another? And today, we're standing at the nexus of multiple dangerous global trends. Our planet has become increasingly uninhabitable as an autocratic, anti-science, anti-democratic, neo-fundamentalist movements have been awakened in this country and around the world, fueled by a collective inability to take seriously the sacred and timeless call to be our brother's keeper. The intoxicating allure of profit and power have in our time nearly eviscerated the ethic of collective responsibility. And this is much more than a political problem. This is a spiritual sickness. It's a spiritual sickness that has allowed us to believe that we live singularly and not in the plural. It's a spiritual sickness that's rooted in the lie that our destiny is not all wrapped up in one another, that ideologies of racial supremacy and religious hegemony, that the desire for power and profit and popularity, that any 
And all of these things take precedence over human life itself. This is a spiritual sickness that's rooted in the lie that freedom means that I have the right to dump toxins and pollutants into our shared waterways with no care, to eat, to burn, to destroy, as though what I do is none of your damn business. On this Yom Kippur, 5782, the year 2021, our planet is crying out for a shift in the collective consciousness. We will only survive if we recognize that we are all bound up in one another. I have been talking to my friend Valerie Kaur about this idea. Some of you know her. She's a Sikh American activist who just published a, um, a stunning and important book called See No Stranger. She says that our minds are primed to see the world in terms of us versus them. We can't help it. The moment we look upon another's face, our minds discern instantly whether or not they are one of us, part of our family or community or country or political party or one of them. And this happens before conscious thought. And who we see as part of us determines who we let inside our circle of care and concern. I so deeply appreciate that formulation because now in our time it is so clear that the way of us versus them, of power over people, of profit over responsible stewardship of the planet, this way has failed us. Yes, it led to discovery and advances, but it also led to exploitation and devastation and unimaginable human suffering. And now it has led us to the very edge. You know this. I know that you see what I'm seeing. We can feel right now that things are falling apart in our world. We have to find a better way. And, and it's said that illness, more than anything else, has the power to awaken that kind of awareness of our interconnectedness. Our vulnerability has the potential to inspire greater compassion toward other people who are also suffering. This time of pandemic, it could awaken us to the truth that we are all part of one grand, complex, beautiful, living organism. As Rabbi Alan Liu once wrote, we all share the same heart. Physically, we can see where one of us begins and another ends, but emotionally and spiritually, it's simply not that way. Our feelings and our spiritual impulses, they flow freely beyond the boundaries of the self. And this is something that each of us knows intuitively. And yet when we talk about these things in, in a Jewish context, we tend to praise the lofty aspirations, love your brother as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. But then we quickly get to work limiting the practical application. Okay, but who am I really responsible for? And I think as a rabbi, that in some ways that's a testament to how seriously our tradition actually takes these prescriptions. If you're responsible for everyone, then you risk falling into a kind of moral void where you're really taking responsibility for no one. But that halachic, that Jewish legal negotiation is also very damaging because it's training our hearts to narrow the scope 
of our moral concern, working to exclude rather than include. I, I want to be really clear that obviously my love and care for my own children is first and foremost in my heart. And it's precisely because of that love that my heart is opened to the needs and to the suffering of other children. Loving our own people does not preclude us from loving other people. And of course, the inverse is also true. To love the world, we do not need to abandon our own people. The hour is demanding that we expand our locus of moral concern. Achi Noam Nini, who was with us last night and, and regrets that she can't be with us today, she wrote something so powerful a few years ago that I want to share with you. It was during one of the Gaza Wars, and she said, if we refuse to recognize each other's rights and embrace our obligations, if we continue to cling to our own narratives with contempt and disregard for the other, if we again and again choose swords over words, if we sanctify land and not the lives of our children, we will soon be forced to seek a colony on the moon for our land will be so drenched in blood and so cluttered with tombstones that there will be nothing left for the living. Today, I am asking us to summon our higher wisdom and our fiercest imagination, not because we're halachically mandated to do so, but because anything less makes a mockery of our Jewish tradition and our history and our Torah. In the United States, in Israel, Palestine, and in the world, there is a confluence of crises that we are suffering from in our time. Pandemic, poverty, racism, climate devastation. These things demand that we leave no one outside our circle of care and concern. I believe that our hearts are capacious enough to hold not only our own families and our own Jewish community, but also the man beneath the blanket outside of Starbucks, and also the Afghan refugee, and also the Palestinian children. And the fact that that is even a question of controversy in our time is both repugnant and shameful. This is the challenge of our time. We need to reclaim an ethic of shared responsibility. Once we recognize how connected we are we will be faced with two imperatives. The first is to love, to be tender, and to be careful with each other's bodies and each other's hearts. To recognize that there is no higher priority than keeping each other healthy in body and in spirit. And I've been so moved by the way that our community continues to do that for one another, week after week, month after month, especially during this time. And the second imperative is to work to build a just society and a healthy ecosystem. So that even as we do whatever is in our power to prevent human suffering in the immediate, we are also planting the seeds for a vibrant, healthy, sustainable future on this earth. None of us can do everything. But each one of us in these fraught times has to consider what is the brave thing that I can do to move us closer to this ideal in our lifetime. This is our first Yom Kippur without Hannah Mintz. Hannah died last month from cancer. 
And I want to tell you that I feel her presence so strongly in this room, and I know that I'm not alone. And I say to, to Marina and to Chad that I loved your mother very, very much. She was really a friend. And I want to lift up Hannah's memory today, sharing one final story. Because about 10 years ago, Hannah was out in the park with her dog when she saw a young guy, homeless, lying on a bench. And, and so Hannah being Hannah, she started to chat with him. His name is Ryan. He was struggling. He was alone. Hannah, of course, took him out to breakfast. By the end of the meal, she had insisted that Ryan come home with her, not just to shower and do his laundry, but to move into her spare bedroom so that he could have a safe place to rest and begin to heal. And some of you know this. Ryan lived in Hannah's house for a year until he was able to get back on his feet. And now he's thriving. He has a career. He has a partner. We asked him if we could share this story today, and he said, of course, I owe my life to Hannah Mintz. Hannah Mintz understood that her locus of moral concern needed to extend to this guy. And I know and you know that many people wouldn't have even seen him there on that bench that day. And those who would have stopped, I suspect, maybe would have said hello, maybe would have smiled, maybe would have left him something to eat or given him a little bit of cash, but not Hannah Mintz. Hannah saved his life. Maybe it's because she tragically lost her own son, Adam, beloved to so many people in this community just a few years before. But I fully believe that when she looked at that boy on the bench and she saw that he, like Adam, also had red hair, she naturally thought, how can I not see you as my son? She treated him as though he was her responsibility. Now, Hannah was at Sadeket. She was one of the righteous ones. And I have to tell you that I was hesitant to even share this story today because I worry that the bar that Hannah set is too high for you and it's too high for me. But I'm asking us on this Yom Kippur to commit to trying to embody the Torah that Hannah lived her life by. Surely every single one of us can do better than we are. We belong to each other. This is a daring and dangerous idea because it calls us to imagine a fundamentally different reality, a world in which we give without being asked, in which our eyes are trained to see even the people that everyone else perceives to be invisible, a world in which the love of our own expands our sense of connection and obligation to others rather than contracting it, a world in which we recognize that we truly are all bound up in the bond of life with one another. I pray on this Yom Kippur, in this era of so much constriction and so much suffering and so much heartache, that we remember that our story is a story of a people that suffered terribly. And then we're called to build a society that was rooted in love 
and dedicated to justice, living in the full awareness of our shared humanity and our interconnectedness. May we all walk through this time with love, with grace, and with conviction. Hey everybody, Randy Sklar here. I'm an eCar member. I'm Jason Sklar here. I'm an eCar fan. Yeah, and we uh, love eCar so much. We love the message that eCar uh, delivers in their many podcasts. And we feel like most people feel there aren't a lot of podcasts in this world. I think there are only two or three. There's only a couple. So what we'd like you to do is donate to eCar at ecar-la.org uh, so that they can do more podcasts and more cool things because Lord knows the world needs more podcasts. Yep.